Welcome to the Restoration Church weekly podcast. Please take a minute to subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And be sure to download the Church Center app. This is the best way to stay connected and up to date with all that's happening at Restoration Church. Most importantly, we hope the following message will help draw you closer to Christ. Thanks for listening. Today we are in part six of our series titled Jesus-Centered Christianity. For the last five weeks we've been working through Romans chapter eight. I'd encourage you if you brought your texts with you today to open up to Romans chapter eight. We're going to be going through uh, 28 through 30 today. Romans is a book that a guy named Paul, who uh, was a follower of Jesus in the first century, wrote to Christians in the city of Rome, hence the name Romans. As we've been studying this text, there are four things that we asked you to do each week uh, that I want to reiterate again, because there, even though there are two weeks left of this series, I do think these are uh, two of the probably most powerful weeks of this series. If you guys know the conclusion of chapter 8, it's just incredible, really, really uh, profound insights that come out of uh, the end of this chapter. The four things that we want to do were to read Romans 8 as often as you possibly could throughout the series. And so maybe that's every day for you. Maybe it's once a week. Uh, just read it as often as you can. Let this text and this word kind of seep into your heart and into your soul. The second is that we ask you to be present on as many Sundays as possible because when you go through a text like this, each week builds on the one prior to it. And so even if you missed a week, we encourage you to go back and listen to it on uh, YouTube or Facebook or our podcast. The third thing is that we ask you to bring your Bible because we hope that you would follow along with us in the text and get the habit. And this isn't just even a this serious thing. Bring bring your Bible, whether it be in the app form or or a hard copy form with you so that you start following along in the text as we walk through it every week here. And then lastly, to invite your people. Like I said, we have two weeks left and the conclusion of Romans 8 is really powerful. So I'd encourage you to be praying about and thinking about who you might be able to invite with you to join you these last two weeks of this series. And of course, as we head into the Easter season, be praying and thinking about those people you'd like to invite to join you here this Easter. Today, we are looking at three verses. That's all three verses in Romans 8. And by the end of it, you are either going to hate me or you're going to have a brand new perspective on what has been a very classic text but a text I think that for many has often been misunderstood. This sermon might feel a little technical at times. I'm just going to forewarn you right now. It may feel more like a like a college class, and you're like, oh, great, uh, than it does a sermon. Um, so put your thinking caps on. We're going back to school today. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna delve into some original language, some context, things like that, to help you understand exactly what Paul is trying to convey uh, in this very important section of Romans eight. But before we jump into that text, I wanna I wanna paint a picture as to why I think a text like this in particular has often been misunderstood, and even even beyond the text itself, why Christianity and the Bible itself is interpreted often the ways that it is. One of the reasons I believe the Bible is authentic, one of the reasons I love the Bible and believe that is the authentic word of God, is because the Bible doesn't do for religious leaders what a religious text is supposed to do. So I think about that for a second. The Bible doesn't do for religious leaders what a religious text is supposed to do. I don't have the full the, the time this morning to fully substantiate a claim like that, but I will say two things. If you want to discuss this idea more, take story about a story one. It's a course that we offer. There's a whole section about this idea in that text. And so it's a conversation, a small group that we offer three times a year. I encourage you to take that course when it's offered next. Second, 
in every religion that has a sacred text, and think of all the religions in the world that have a sacred text, of all the religions that have a sacred text in the world, that text exists to tell how that particular deity, the particular deity of that religion, expects the people to behave. It's a it's a it's a information, a book about information, a book about rules, a book about laws, a book about instruction and how the people are supposed to behave under under the authority of that particular deity. And if you do not behave in that particular way, here's what's been understood, religion's been understood for, for generations, that you will generally be punished. The tornado and the floods that come, the earthquakes, the drought, the bad harvest, your infertility, the cancer, the disease, all of these exist because the gods are angry because you did not exist in a particular way. That is generally how religion has been understood throughout the generations. And the priests then of said religion, right? It doesn't really matter what religion we're talking about. The priests, the people in charge, the authority figures of that religion are the interpreters of those demands and mediators between heaven and earth. And therefore they hold immense power. The priests of religions hold immense power because they in effect wield the power of the gods. Religious texts were introduced, in other words, to control people. But the Bible is such a unique book. This is not the intent or the purpose of the Bible. The Bible is so unique. It is unlike every other religious text. The Bible is not a book of rules. Yes, it does contain some rules, but it's not a book of rules. It's a book about a story. It's a story primarily. And it wasn't introduced or compiled by one person in a short period like every other religious text was. It came to be over 1,500 years by at least 28 different authors. But more importantly, the Bible doesn't promote control. It promotes surrender. It's not trying to control you, it's trying to surrender you. No one seeking to gain control or create religion would have written or advocated for the Bible. Its climax is about weakness and shame and death and humility. The way of Jesus is about sacrifice and surrender and love. The Bible is about how God does good for bad people. If you are looking to control people through fear, Jesus is not the deity you would have created. If you are looking to control people through through fear, Jesus doesn't do that. The fact that the Bible has survived and thrived is great evidence for its authenticity because it is not a book that any religious organization, religious group of people ever would have used to get their point across. But when the Roman Empire adopted Christianity and its official religion in the 4th century, emperors appointed priests to maintain public civility. They appointed priests to be the policemen who kept people in line because, again, that's what Romans and their pagan religions thought the purpose of religious priests and religious leaders was to do, was to control the people, to create civil responsibility. Religions existed to control people. But how do you do that with a text like the Bible? When Christianity is the authoritative religion of the empire, how do you control people with the Bible that doesn't promote control, that promotes surrender? How do you do that with a text that doesn't demand that you behave a certain way or incur the wrath of the gods? How do you do that with a book that says God meets bad people mercifully, that he dies for sinners? And so the question that drove the church for a thousand years between 500 and 1500 was this, how can we control the people? How can those in charge stay in charge? How can the wealthy stay wealthy? How can the powerful stay powerful? How can the comfortable stay comfortable? That was the questions they were asking. For some of this, uh, for some of you, I'm sorry, this idea didn't end with the Reformation. A lot of this was what, was what Martin Luther and the other reformers were fighting against, was this idea, this mentality. 
For some of you, this idea didn't end with the Reformation. Though A lot of people hold an image of an angry God who demands that you behave a certain way or you will be punished. Has anybody ever created an image of their God as a punishable God because you don't behave the right way? I think a lot of us probably have. A lot of parents use that as a tool to manipulate their children. A lot of church leaders do the same with their people. How do those in charge stay in charge? How do those the wealthy stay wealthy? How do the comfortable stay comfortable? Well, the first thing that you would have to do in a society like this is to take away the text from the people. And so the official language of Christianity became Latin, which very few people spoke or read. William Tyndale, maybe you know the story, William Tyndale, he tried to, to translate the text into a common language. He, he tried to translate it into a language that the, the masses could understand so that you as a commoner would have access to the Bible and you could read the words for yourself. Do you know what the church did to him? They, they tied a rope around his neck, they dragged him to the center of town and they burned him at the stake. Uh, John Huss did something similar. He, he tried to pr- promote a, a, a salvation through, through faith. And the church leadership, the, the Christian church leadership, they dressed him up as a demon and they tied him to a stake and they burned him alive. Those in wealthy need to stay wealthy. Those in control need to stay in control. Those who are comfortable need to stay comfortable. And when you threaten that, then we do horrible things to you. See, once the people don't have access to the text, well, the priests, they become the divine authority. If I were the only one who had access to the divine word of God, I, in effect, could tell you whatever I want as the divine authority of God. I could manipulate the text to tell you whatever I wanted, and I could then dangle, and this is the second thing you'd have to do, then you'd have to dangle the afterlife in front of the people. How do I get your allegiance? How do I get your service? How do I get your money? In your obedience, well, I dangle the afterlife in front of you. I paint a picture of hell that is so horrible that people do whatever I tell them to escape that picture of hell. Again, because I am the divine authority, I can paint that picture and tell you this is the accurate authoritative picture, and you can do then what I tell you to do to escape that idea. And so if I need an army, for instance, to expand the kingdom of Rome throughout the world against the barbarians and the Jews and the Muslims, I could tell you that, well, if you join my army and you fight in my crusades, then your sins will be erased for doing so. And you won't have to go to hell, and your time in purgatory will be far less because of your fighting. If I needed funding for a palace or so that my dinner table would be elaborate and delicious, then I could tell you that you could buy your way out of hell. Or I could tell you that the, the punishment of your deceased family members will be less if you give me your indulgences, if you pay to support the building of these palaces and my dinner table. You know that priests throughout the Middle Ages, they sat on thrones of gold paid for by starving peasants. Priests wore elaborate robes and golds, gold crowns made by deprived tradesmen. Massive ornate cathedrals were built to service the church in the middle of impoverished villages. How do those who are wealthy stay wealthy? How do the comfortable stay comfortable? How do the powerful stay powerful? Well, you dangle heaven and hell before the masses. Ever since the Middle Ages, the Western church has been fixated on how to get to heaven and to avoid hell. That was the byproduct of all of this. Ever since the Middle Ages, the Western church has been fixated on how to get to heaven and to avoid hell. And though the Reformation of the 16th century changed so much of this mentality, the general pursuit still prevailed. The result is that the church has read all of its key texts through a personal salvation lens, that the Bible is trying to tell me how I get to heaven. 
That individual salvation is the point of the Bible. So many people understand. A lot of Christians still today read the Bible as if it's all about them and how they'll get to heaven when they die. And the purpose of the scripture and the purpose of the gospel is so that we, those who believe in Jesus, would get to heaven when we die. And when that is our understanding, when that is all we read the Bible about, when we, when we think about the Bible and we think about the gospel and it's all just about me and how I get to heaven, then when my personal salvation is attained, then my responsibility as a Christian stops. I've done my part. I'm going to heaven. Nothing more is expected of me. If your own personal salvation is what's most important, then when you are saved, you're done. You can sit back. God has accomplished in you all that he has hoped to accomplish. Good job. You're going to heaven. Nothing more is expected of you. And we become so fixated on our own salvation that we often miss and misinterpret what the Bible is saying. And I think Paul, the person who contributed more to the New Testament than anybody, than any other person, he wrote half of what we have in our New Testament. He would say that's so unfortunate because God wants so much more for you and God wants to do so much more through you. And so let me recap Romans 8 before we move on. But keep all of this in mind as we go. Here is a recap of Romans 8, the first 27 verses. Those in Christ are not condemned because God did for us through Jesus what we could not do for ourselves. He lived as we were designed, thereby carrying sin and death to the cross, condemning it in his own flesh. He then passed his faithfulness, his right standing before the Father, and his power to live rightly to those who trust in him. But those who live in opposition to God's design invite death and chaos, while those who live through and are led by Christ's Spirit and power will invite life and peace. God did this so that the entire world would experience liberation and restoration, not just individuals. We who trust in Christ are the first to taste new creation, and our lamenting over the pain that still exists in the world is our longing for that promised day to come quickly. There's a lot to emphasize here, but what's important is that Paul believed that God's purpose in Christ from the very beginning, his predetermined purpose from the very beginning, his purpose in Christ was that all of creation would be restored. And we as individuals are a subset of what God was hoping to do with all of the world. This isn't just about individual Christians, individual people about going to heaven when we die. God is hoping to restore all of creation to himself. God saw how sin corrupted everything that he called good. Every single thing that is good has been corrupted by sin. If you've ever read Genesis 1, you may remember how at the end of each day, God looks at what he has created and he determines that it was good. You guys remember this in Genesis 1? God looks at the sky and the land and the animals and he saw that it was good. Creation being good meant that it was doing what it intended to do. As God is forming and crafting it and giving it purpose, he says, you know what? You're good in that you do what I've created you to do. You function as I've created you to function. You're, 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 you're existing as I created you to, to be designed to do. It's working correctly, functioning rightly. It's fulfilling its purpose. And then after day six, as humans are made in the image of God and they rule alongside him, we're told that creation is very good. All of creation is functioning rightly. It's doing what it's supposed to be doing. Every Christmas we read this um, book called Jingle All the Way. You guys ever read this book before? It's about this little puppy dog who, who um, and it's cool because when you interact with it, you can say certain phrases and then the, the puppy dog barks and it's kind of cute and whatnot. But I totally meant to bring it with you with me today. I totally forgot. But 
One of the refrains in this book is, Jingle, you're a good dog. <laughs> yeah. Jingle, you're a good dog. <laughs> yeah, thank you for that. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I was thinking about this today because we often think about goodness as, as a certain quality of character. We often think about goodness, like in this book's contest, as being obedient. Think of the ways that we use the word good. My kids are so good, you know. Why are they good? Well, they follow the rules. You know, my kids are so good. You have such good kids. They're so well-behaved, we would say. Jingle was a good dog because Jingle did what he was told. Or we equate goodness with enjoyable, like that was a really good movie or that was a really good meal, right? It was enjoyable to me. Or we often equate goodness against evil. So goodness is the opposite of bad, and in some sense, it becomes a subjective idea. Like, what does it mean to be good? Well, I don't know. It really depends on the person who's using the word. But the word in Hebrew, tov, and its Greek equivalent, agathos, means this, functioning, functioning as it was designed to function. That's how the Bible uses the word good. Whenever you see the word good in the Bible, it's referring to something functioning as it was intended to function, as it was designed to function. That's what being me, that's what being good means in scripture. It has flavors of obedience, yes, because if something is good, it's doing what it's supposed to do, but when sin corrupted the world, creation in every way is no longer good. It's no longer doing what it's supposed to be doing. It's no longer functioning as God intended it to function. It's not existing rightly as it was created and ordered. And here's what Paul is hoping to convey in Romans, that God's purpose in Jesus is to restore his intended order for all of creation, not just us as individuals. Many of you may be familiar with the Romans Road to Salvation. It's a tool, it's a helpful tool that walks through various verses in Romans to help one understand God's plan for salvation. Has anybody ever been led to Christ even through the salvation, the Romans Road to Salvation? It's a really powerful tool. It really helps to understand God's gospel. But the, the, the critique of the Romans Road to Salvation is that it ends with you, the individual. It ends with our own salvation. It ends with us being in heaven. And at the end of the day, it's like, that's all that there is. That's my point, is to get to heaven for me when I die someday. But Paul, in all of his writings, he's adamant that salvation is not simply God's gift to his people. It's God's gift through his people. And this is so important. This is what Paul is hoping to emphasize here in this, this very, this last section of Romans before he just ignites the, fi- the finale, right? The, the fireworks display is about to come to its conclusion and we just, he wants to celebrate at the end. This is what Paul hopes to convey. All this talk about not being condemned, all this talk about salvation, all this talk about what God has done in us to accomplish for us. It's not just for us. It is so that God would give his people salvation to work salvation through his people for the rest of creation. In Romans, Paul has the whole scope of restored creation in mind. He says in verses 19 through 21, For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. The creation is waiting for us to be restored. Creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. And so God's purpose in saving us through Christ was not just so that we'd be with him in eternity. It's not just so that we would get to heaven when we die but so that we would carry our redemption, the cross of Christ itself, into the pain of the world. 
That we would participate with God in saving the world. That we as believers and followers of Jesus would carry his crucifixion with us in the way that we love, in the way that we serve, and give and pray and invite and bend low and humble ourselves, and in some cases, yes, even the way that we die. But that we would always, every single day, die to our selfless ambition, that we would carry our cross, take up our cross daily as we suffer in the world. When we live cross-shaped lives, God's plan of redemption goes with us as his love flows through us. That is Paul's hope in this final conclusion, that we, cross-shaped people, people who carry our cross out into the world, that God's salvation for us, to us, would go with us into a hurting and broken world. Do you guys know anybody who's hurting? Do you guys know anybody who's far from Jesus in your life? Anybody who's broken and selfish and it's ruining their relationships and it's ruining their households? You know anybody who needs healing? Paul would say the salvation that you have received was so that you would carry the cross, the redemption of Christ with you into the pain of the world. That you would have a word and that you would have healing and a word of hope for those situations. Paul, in other words, is more interested in the outworking of our vocation. He's more interested in the outworking of our purpose than he is in our own personal salvation. Our own personal salvation is a point in the middle of what God is accomplishing. It is not the end of the line. Salvation for us is a point in the middle of what God is accomplishing. It is not the end of the line. And therefore, we who are saved must continue to journey with God out into the pain of the world. It was God's plan from the beginning that those who pick up the call to trust in Christ would participate with him in his redemption project over the world. And here's what he says as we pick up Romans in verse 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And here is where some of you are going to start hating me. Because for a lot of you, this is like one of your favorite verses. And for a lot of people, they've looked at this verse and they said, I found so much solace in this verse because I look back at my life and I look back at all the pain and all of the good and I realize how it has brought me to this place and I'm so grateful because I would not be the person that I am today if all of the bad things and all of the good things didn't happen. And that's a really beautiful perspective. And that's absolutely true, that we are the summation of every experience that we've had and that's absolutely true. That's a beautiful perspective. And for those that love God, they can see that. Right? For those that love God, they can see how even the bad things and the good things help shape them and bring them to this place in life. That's a beautiful perspective. But this verse has also been used as a tourniquet of sorts. It's been used as a pat on the back during some of the darkest moments of people's lives. Maybe some of you have been abused by this this verse before. When tragedy strikes, when you lose your job, when your marriage falls apart, when the diagnosis is heart-wrenching, Has anybody ever come to you and said, well, you know what? It's okay. God works all things for the good of those who love him. What do you want to do in those circumstances? Get the fist out? Usually, right? God works all things for the good. I read a story of this week of a young man who died in a car accident. He was a follower of Jesus, but his parents weren't followers of Jesus. At his funeral, some of his friends got up and they spoke. And one of them quoted this verse at his funeral. That we don't know why things happen. We don't know that God, but we, we don't know why bad things happen, but we do know, they said at this kid's funeral, we do know that God will work all things together for good. 
And the kid's dad just lost it. He was irate. His reaction was understandable. It was predictable. He was angry. He was bitter, not only at his son's death, but at the sheer audacity of someone apparently labeling his son's tragic death as good. See, when we read this through our individualistic lens that puts me at the center, if we read the Bible as it's, if it's, the Bible is really just telling me how to get to heaven and it's really just about the individual, when we read this through an individualistic lens, rather than what God is doing with all of creation, from his purpose from the beginning to restore all of creation, we become the passive recipients of all things working for good. That somehow, you know, God will see it that I am blessed. That, that somehow all the puzzle pieces and all the experiences of life, that somehow they're all going to come together to form a good puzzle on my behalf. That somehow everything is going to work out. And because I love God, and in our very American understanding, often that means that I will be comfortable and blessed. That everything is going to be all right. God is going to make sure that I'm comfortable. God's going to make sure that I'm blessed. God's going to make sure that everything is all right for me. Well, tell that to the Christians who are dying in death camps in Cambodia. Tell that to the Christians who are hunted down in North Africa. It's a nice sentiment, right? In America, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. It's a nice sentiment that everything's going to be all right. We want to believe that. It's just not what this verse says. This is the original Greek of this verse, and this is probably means very little to very few, few of you. But here is a literal translation of what this text. And there are some translations, by the way, the RSV is a, is a great example that, that translates, translates it this way. Literally, this text reads this. We know that with those who love God, he collaborates for good. With those called according to his purpose. Just think about how that changes the meaning of how we've classically understood this text. We know that with those who love God, he collaborates for good. With those called according to his purpose. The word synerge, which we get our word synergy from, typically translated all things together. It doesn't mean that there are various pieces of a puzzle that all come together to form a whole, as we oftentimes understand life, right? Like all the pieces of my life will all somehow come together to shape some puzzle that is that is good, that I interpret as good. The word means two or more things working on a shared task. It's a group project. That's what the word literally means, group project. And the word good, again, is not our well-being, not our enjoyable life. It is our rightly functioning creation is what good translates to in scripture. So according to the Greek, we are not passive recipients of a good life because God in some mysterious way will weave this horrible situation I'm experiencing into a blessed end, an enjoyable end for me. No, this text tells us that we are collaborators with God to bring good, a well-ordered, rightly functioning creation, a creation in all facets that does what it is supposed to do. That is what this text is saying, that we collaborate with God. Those who have been redeemed, we are collaborators with God to bring a rightly ordered creation back into being. This is a missional text, friends. It's not about how God's going to work everything out in your life so that it's somehow enjoyable and beneficial to you. This is a text calling us to be on mission in our community to bring about a well-ordered creation where we see pain. You might say this, God's purpose for those who love him was to work with them in bringing his creation back into order. That's kind of a summary of what this text is saying. God's purpose for those who love him 
was to work with them in bringing his creation back into order. We are collaborators with God, missionaries with God, carrying Christ's cross to the point of the world's pain where his love, his blood, his redemption, and his freedom overwhelm sin and death. And Paul says this was always his plan. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, he continues, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Likewise, when we read the Bible, when it's all about me and my own personal salvation, what God is doing in me, and how then I get to heaven, well, we read a verse like this through a personal salvation filter, and we think Paul is saying that God chooses some to be saved, and he chooses others not to be saved, because that is the implication, right? If God chooses certain people to be saved, then he's also choosing other people not to be saved. And yay, I'm in the saved group. We're in the saved group. Aren't we lucky? That's awesome that God chose us to be saved. And I can then subvert the will of God. The world and all the people in the world are going to be what God makes it. And so what do I get to do? I just get to sit back and do nothing. I can't subvert the will of God. He's, he's the one who's choosing. He's the one who's doing all the work. I get to sit back and do nothing. It's a very passive way of understanding our responsibility as Christians. But that's exactly the opposite of what Paul is trying to convey here at the end of Romans 8. Paul's point is that from the beginning, that's the predetermined part, the predestined part. From the beginning, God's plan was to create a family of Messiah-shaped people, those who were conformed into his image, through whom he would do what had to be done. God's plan was that there would be a lot of little Christians, a lot of little Christs, people who look just like Christ's, running around his creation, restoring it through the power of his Holy Spirit. That was God's plan. That we who are saved would take up our salvation, the cross, the redemption of Christ, and we would carry it with us into the pain of the world. Let me reiterate, this is not about individual salvation. This is about corporate vocation, about what we are to do, what our responsibility as followers of Jesus is. We, the saved community, the ones becoming like Jesus, are the ones with the calling to implement the already accomplished work of Jesus, by taking with us the means of redemption, his cross into the world for the benefit of creation. And those who believe, having responded in faith to the call which God planned long ago, are declared to be in the right, not condemned, and we have then the dignity of the true people of God, or this is how Paul concludes it. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. And these are just a lot of big, fancy theological terms, I get it. They simply mean this. Those having responded in faith to the call which God planned long ago are declared to be in the right. Not condemned and have the dignity as the true people of God. Glorified does not mean that we are going to go to heaven when we die. It means regaining the proper human vocation and dignity under God and over the world. Okay, so our college course is coming to a conclusion here let me just recap in a summary of sorts of what i understand these verses to be saying god's purpose for those who love him was to work with them in bringing his creation back into order he planned this long ago his goal was to create a family of messiah shaped people through whom he would bring restoration to the whole creation those who respond in faith to this calling are declared to be in the right not condemned, and have the dignity as the true people of God. I'm going to invite the band forward. We're going to sing one final song as we reflect on this for just a minute more. Now, you can either hate me or love me for this interpretation, but I do want to suggest that this is far more Pauline than how we've, under, how we've understood this text before. 
This is far more in line with what Paul says elsewhere in many of his other letters. It is far more in line with Paul's theology than reading it about individual salvation. It also, I think, provides a far more meaningful conclusion and a more logical conclusion to what Paul has said so far in Romans. But here really is the point, and here is what Paul, I think, just wants to convey and wants us to understand, that God's love has been poured out upon a hurting world to heal it and restore it. Yes, God's love has been poured out on you and we, for those who are followers and entrusted in Christ, we know this, right? God's love has been poured into us, and it has healed us, and it has restored us, and we are still in that process of it doing so, but it is working in us to transform us. And his purpose then in filling us with his love was not just so that we could be contained, so that it could be self-contained in us, but rather that it would overflow freely and powerfully from you. We went to go see Ordinary Angels this week. I don't know if you've seen that movie. It's about this um, this little girl who's very sick, and this random woman reads about this girl in the paper. She had just lost her mother. This little girl had just lost her mom, and she needed a liver transplant. And so this hairdresser, right, just this ordinary hairdresser, she's like, I don't know, I could probably do something. Her heart just broke over this girl's situation, and she starts raising money, and she calls on behalf of this family, and she just, she intercedes, right? She sees the pain of the world, and she intercedes in the pain of the world. And that's what Paul would say each of our responsibilities is. We who are in a process of being healed are to look at where there is hurt and take our healing and extend it to the hurting. We we who have been transformed by the truth of Christ are to take that truth and we are to take it to the lies of the world and intercede and interject that truth into the lies of the world. We who are being transformed are to look at the chaos and the brokenness of the world and to carry the cross of Christ, the source of our redemption, into the despair of the world. We have this incredible responsibility, but it's also an honor to be ambassadors of Christ. To the the Corinthians, Paul says, "Don't, don't you know, don't you know, friends? You are Christ's ambassadors compelled by God's love. Did you even know that it was God's intention that he would make his appeal to the world through you? That's a bold statement. That's a huge responsibility. That we get to carry the love and the gospel of Christ into a hurting world and assist with Christ in redeeming it. My friends, when it happens, it is so much fun. I've got to sit in the front row to watch God do amazing things in people's lives that I have been able to introduce to the gospel. Incredible things. Life-changing things. It is so much fun, friends. Is it intimidating at first? Yes. You know why? Because the world has a stigma against us and the church. And so I get it. I get there's some intimidation. I get that there's some hesitation in doing so. But my friends, when you see a world that is hurting... When you see that there is pain in the world, when you see that the world is not good, when it's not functioning rightly and as it was intended to, you are called, Paul would say, as those who have taken up the cross of Christ to bring that redemption into it. 
Shout it from the mountains. Scream it from the rooftops. Our God saves. Our God heals. Our God restores. There is hope. There is life. Father, I pray that you would fill us with courage. Yes, understanding about your word, Father, yes, but I pray that you would fill us with courage. That we would not be shy or intimidated, Father, or ashamed of the gospel, for it is the hope of those who are in despair. Fill us with courage, Father, that as we leave this place, we may take your cross with us. The overflowing outpouring of your love, Father, onto this world that you have staked into the ground through your cross, Father. Let us take it with us. Call the devil the liar that he is. And may your love and redemption overflow, Father, and and free our tongues, free our hands, Father, to be your hands and feet and to be your voice, Father. By your power, by your spirit, Father, may we do a work in this world for your namesake and for your glory to redeem those who are far from you. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. We're just going to sing one final song together. If you want to stand or sit, you're welcome to take whatever posture you would like. Father, how will the world know if we do not tell them? How will the world know if we do not tell them? Let us be a people who, Father, who are so intent on praying for this world and our community and our friends and family who are lost, who are hurting and broken, trying to cope through their own abilities, Father. And let us introduce them to the God who saves, to the God who heals, to the God who restores. Let us always be prepared with the word of the hope that we have. So when we meet the world's despair, we might have something to say, Father. We might introduce them into life. And then give us the courage and the boldness, Father, to take your cross out with us as we go. You've called us to collaborate with you, Father, in bringing this creation back into order. Maybe not just shove this calling aside, thinking we've done all that we need to do. Father, we're saved. We get to go to heaven. Great. You have called us, Father, with such a great responsibility to be your ambassador as though you are making your appeal to a broken world through us. Give us the courage, the wisdom, and certainly the power of your Holy Spirit, Father, to do just that. We do pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. God bless you, friends. Thanks for being with us today. We'll see you again next time.